Another big week on the Emerging Cricket Podcast from action in UAE, Nepal, Japan and news from the USA, plus the consequences of India's reluctance to host a fully-fledged women's IPL. But first, a shout-out to our friends on Patreon. If you're passionate about cricket in the associate world and beyond, you can help us grow from as little as $2 a month by becoming an Emerging Cricket patron. To sign up, log on to patreon.com forward slash Emerging Cricket. Up next, plenty to discuss in the Emerging Game. Another huge week in the emerging cricket world, and we have it all for you here at the Emerging Cricket Podcast this week online and on Sport FM in Perth. Nick Skinner, Tim Cutler, and myself, Daniel Baswick, to talk about all of it. How are we, fellas? Let's start with uh, you, Nicholas. What's been happening? Uh, well, I'm knee-deep in paperwork at the moment, trying to sort everything out for uh, visas to go to Iceland, which I, I, I'm pretty sure we mentioned last week, but I can't be bothered... Uh, listening back so um if if you if this is the first time you're hearing it i will be moving to iceland later on in the year with brooklyn studying at a university there but uh yeah at the moment just a lot of paperwork trying to get it all sorted not many people will be able to say that they ever lived in iceland who aren't icelandic well there's not many icelandic people so uh... (laughs) (laughs) so will they appreciate your proficiency in the danish language or will that be be seen as an interloper (laughs) well they were previously a Danish colony, so I assume some of them will have learnt Danish at some point, but I feel like the English will be the main uh, language at first, at least. That is very exciting. The, uh, um, I think it just, you know, just puts another dot on the map, doesn't it? The, uh, the sun never sets on the emerging cricket team, huh? <laughs> yes, well, um, Iceland do famously have a team. Not an ICC member yet, uh, so we'll see how that all goes. I uh, might have to look in on their ground up north. Uh, allegedly the cricket ground that's furthest north anywhere in the world. So uh, that could be interesting. There is talk of them actually showing some endeavour and becoming an ICC member, which is encouraging. It's very hard to uh, get too high on places that don't really strive to become part of the brethren Tim, uh, how are you in Vanuatu? How are things there? I thought you were very well restrained there. <laughs> I think if Iceland put as much effort into developing the game as they did the jokes on their Twitter account, I think they'd be in a good place. But, you know, I think we talked last week about focus in Nepal and about, you know, how you kind of feed the cycle. I guess you, Iceland cricket definitely have the interest, but I guess it's not all from the people locally who want to know about the sport being played or in schools, etc. So we shall see. But now that Nick's moving there, another wicketkeeper, another dodgy wicketkeeper who travels with all of his passports in his bag just in case he gets a game um, but that is exciting news it's on my list of places to travel to so who knows might be seeing you there soon but uh, oh yeah come visit in the summer i think you might prefer it then uh, well yeah probably days where the sun doesn't set would be better than days when the sun doesn't rise so yeah mm. I'll, I'll take <laughs> option a uh but you i didn't even answer your question i just started talking that's unlike me isn't it Daniel, um, I'm good. I've decided to um, make a flying visit back to Australia in June. Now that quarantine's down only three days here and can get off the rock for a little bit of time before a jam-packed second half of the year. But negotiating with what flights are actually going to be coming back um, and knowing that Ben Cameron will be starting soon, etc., etc. But it's going to be quite cool. I think I'm going to catch about three different 40ths for mates and then surprise my dad on his 70th. And I can say that here because I know he doesn't listen to the podcast. And he's not on social media, so no one can tell him. But um, no, so that'll, that'll be cool. 
I think he's resigned to the fact that I'm I'm not coming there and the fact that my daughter's hopefully going to fly out in August from the UK. So it's going to be great even more so to show me a bit of love. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Just trying to organise everything at the moment. Going to hit three cities. There's going to be a bit of work and a bit of play, but uh, no, I'm good. How about you, Daniel? You're a busy man. Um, as long as this trip to Australia might be, there is no guarantee that we will see a young Timothy Lawrence Cutler in our presence. But... You will see me. We will record okay. a podcast oh. you know, in the same room for the first time since 2020. Jeez. Yeah. Oh, God. Has it been that long? Since, uh, yeah, just before the... Yeah. yeah. When we were in my hotel room and I was down for a, a work trip. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And we're all sort of lent over tables and stuff trying to properly trying to prop microphones up. My dining table will be ready for us. I guarantee that. It was pretty messy last time I was there, so... Uh... <laughs> Correct. Um, yes. No, definitely. And and with the changes in flights, it sounds like we're going to be spending... Well, opportunity to spend more time together because from a flight that was supposed to be... Came back on the 20th, it looks like it's going to be later in the month because... Everybody needs to know my travel plans. But, you know, EC fans, Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne. Do a live show. Yeah, going to be there Going to be there signing my new book. <laughs> so uh, come along and uh, I don't know. If there are fans out there that fancy a beverage at some point, feel free. I've been known to sit around and talk about the emerging cricket world um, for fun. So um, feel free to sing out anybody. But uh, no, looking forward to it. You know, I look around Vanuatu and see people who have not left for more than two years. And I'm sort of getting to the point of the year. It's like, yeah, I think it's time to... Let's take advantage of this time and get get out, and, and then then off to Canada. Not long after, with the team, as it looks like I may be taking up managerial duties. As scary as that sounds, oh, huge if true. Shall we talk some uh, cricket that did go on this week in the emerging world, namely uh, in United Arab Emirates, almost as a curtain raiser to Fair Break Global Invitational 2022. UAE hosted Hong Kong in a women's T20I series, pretty comprehensive series victory for the hosts, winning. Four matches to nil. Quickly running through the scores. A nine-wicket victory, 26-run victory, 28-run victory, and a seven-wicket win uh, with 27 balls to spare. few storylines in, in all of this and the ever-present Chamani Senavaratna once again showing all of her class in international cricket after debuting, I think, in 1997, scoring a test century for Sri Lanka all the way back. I think she might have the highest score by number eight in women's test history. Still doing a great job for UAE, but a number of players getting a chance in, in this series, obviously, with Fairbreak being straight after. We saw a couple of people, a couple of notable players stand up and, and be counted in this series, but overall, UAE too strong, Nick. Yeah, uh, Senavaratna's Probably should be creeping up on the longest international or active international career of any player at the moment that I can think of. Uh, I think a potentially Lemek Onyango from Kenya, if if he gets a Guernsey, he'd be up there as well. He started in the nineties back in the day, but uh, I can't think of too many others with a with a longer international career. I know Matali Raj. Started late 90s, she's still going, but uh, yeah, not many others. So yeah, congratulations for that. And just on her experience, I guess having that senior head, I think has been really helpful for the younger generation coming through because a 4-0 clean sweep of the series against Hong Kong, but it's sort of, it's that classic combination of experience and youth. They have Senevaratna and they have Chaya Magal, who's who's in her mid to late 30s as well, kind of shepherding the youngsters. There's a whole bunch of teenagers coming through, very exciting talents with the 
ball and with the bat, especially with the ball, 15-year-old Leggy, uh, Vaishnave Mahesh, Samara Danadaka, who's at 15 years is already a senior player in this UAE team. Uh, Sia Gokale, another seamer, 16 years old. Played only the one match, but picked up three for 14. So they've got a lot of bowling options coming through and and it's the same with the bat as well they're all very young you know Esha Oza Kavisha Edgadage and Tirta Satish uh, the wicketkeeper that that top three scored 89% of the runs off the bat for the UAE uh, so they were um, <laughs> the top orders doing the job uh, no one else really needed to swing the bat but uh, dominant performance really Hong Kong seems to almost get worse or, or it's always two sides and, and the UAE got better and better as the series went along and it was the first cricket for about six months for both of these since the um, the Asia qualifier towards the end of last year 14 consecutive wins for the UAE which they're not getting up into that record-breaking range just yet but one to keep an eye on especially if they get a few you know bilateral series against some some potentially lower ranked opponents over the next little while um Tim maybe can talk to us a bit about Hong Kong but it just seems like they're either stalling or, or going backwards at this level and they've been very much overtaken by UAE and and arguably Nepal at this level whereas you know there was a time where they were the clear sort of second best side in the Asian region for the women. So I don't know if that's uh, Hong Kong stagnating or, or if it's just the other teams have really upped their game because for Hong Kong, it's kind of, you know, it's the same names, you know, Carrie Chan, score the most runs, bowl the most overs at the best economy rate. Tash Miles, who recently came back from England, scored very few runs at a, an average of about two. Mariko Hill, reliable again with the ball, consistently taking wickets. But yeah, just just kind of the same names and, and just they're not finding a way to get over the line, Tim. Oh, I think if you look at how far Thailand's come and them challenging the, the teams at the level they are, I think it's fair to say that they've got better. But I sort of think of 10 years ago, Thailand and Nepal were, were nipping at the heels there. And don't forget China as well during that time had a really good women's team. And that was sort of seen as a potential window into the sort of the Chinese market with success. The women's team, they've really gone backwards. I almost said as well, because that would be agreeing with you. So I'm not necessarily saying it's they've gone backwards. But what we're not seeing are the the new names coming through in that time. You know, those names that you read out have been part of the team for five to ten years now. And it's not saying that's a bad thing if they've fought the core of the team and they've been able to take them forward. But they've always been just fallen over at the last hurdle or just been not able to get those those wins they needed. And that included hosting a couple of qualifying tournaments in Hong Kong too. You know, and the difference was between the men's and the women's. The men's well were and are fully contracted and the women's only had some part-time contracts in and around tournaments. So that's always going to have an effect when you're playing against teams like Thailand now who are full-time contracted cricketers. But I, I guess that's just the, the sort of chicken and egg situation that a lot of associations come up against. It's just how much do you, or are you able to invest and looking towards the future? And, you know, Hong Kong's had other things to consider too with the, you know, running the sixes and the blitz in the previous years and trying to navigate through a fairly, well, tumultuous time at the moment too. So to make be making sort of big investment decisions is always a big choice. But yeah, you mentioned Tash Miles there to come back after playing high-class cricket in the UK. I'm sure she'll be disappointed and everyone will be, will be wishing that she was able to, to offer a bit more. But, you know, all of these players are in the... Well, most of them, sorry, are, are going to get a chance during the fair break series, which is great for them. But I think we just see the rise the rise of the UAE, you know, in just thinking of how the, the sort of top teams have changed in that in that time period. You know, at that time it was of Nepal... Hong Kong, China, and now sort of Thailand have gone rocketing past, and UAE is sort of a very clear second now with sort of Nepal and, and Hong Kong stagnating and, and China fallen even further behind. Where on the men's side, I suppose names like Kuwait 
Qatar and Bahrain are sort of nipping at the heels and sort of you know getting past the likes of Hong Kong on rankings in T20 but we're not seeing the, the sort of line change at the top you know you've still got the UAE Oman and, and Nepal's at the top there but where we've seen a real change from the, the women's side so I don't think it's so much a, a Hong Kong problem but let's not forget the, the two years that they've just been through you know when I'm I left Hong Kong in 2019 that was when the protests just started so where we're thinking about a COVID world Hong Kong sort of been in their own kind of parallel universe there as well everything happened with the protests and the crippling effect that had on the town and, and sport and then COVID so I'm willing to cut them a little slack at the moment considering they're probably facing the, the biggest challenges there than, than any of the teams they've come up against in the recent past. Plenty of action in the women's world of course with fair break Invitational 2022 underway by the time you're all listening to this. That is in full swing. We did a mini preview of it last week as well, if you missed that. Uh, in terms of viewership, make sure to, to head around and just find out where and who have the rights to it in your respective lands. Uh, a few other things, I suppose, to kind of tick off on the women's side. We'll talk about the women's T20 challenge in India because I think that's a pretty big topic in a moment. Um, just to kind of wrap up a couple of other things that are going on. Janet Mbabazi of Uganda has been nominated for the Women's ICC Player of the Month for April as well after her exploits recently in that Capricorn Tri-Series. And uh, France are hosting a quadrangular women's series between themselves, Austria, Spain, and Jersey from the 5th to the 8th of May as well. Uh, The Women's T20 Challenge, boys, uh, we do know that a women's IPL is in the works for next year, but I think it's... It's almost a universal bugbear for everyone outside of the Indian cricket power brokers at the moment where everyone can see that this is such a viable thing, but they're sticking to their little three-team tournament that, that's going on while the men's IPL is also happening as well. It's been moved to Pune. I'm sure we've got a lot of points about this, but I mean, fair break will, will kind of prove us all as true here and and making the same point. They will show us that a women's franchise league is viable of this nature. And, and we've already seen domestic competitions both in England and Australia on the women's side go completely gangbusters. So, Nick, I, I look at you just... It's such a trick that they're missing here. And I think Tim actually made the point before we jumped on. And this competition could run at a loss for multiple years. And it really wouldn't matter in the context of the BCCI and its money. So why isn't it being done yet? Uh, just, I think so many people around the world just are, are truly flummoxed by what's going on. Yeah, it's quite strange, especially this year where it's this kind of awkward just a holding pattern while they wait till next year when apparently an actual women's IPL is starting with six teams. So, yeah, it's kind of a, you know, if they're willing to do that, why not just bring that forward a year? It wouldn't. They set up the original IPL uh, very quickly. You know, when, when that um, Rebel League started back in 2007, 2008, they slapped together the IPL kind of at a moment's notice, really. So why they couldn't do that now with 15 years more um, uh, experience and knowledge about how to run tournaments, you know, why they couldn't put together a women's tournament this year it's kind of baffling uh it seems like they're gonna try and do it simultaneously with the men's comp which is i mean that's kind of the model for you know the hundred and uh the early seasons of the women's big bash but i don't know do they even need to do that i, I think they could try you know going out on a limb and, and do something a bit different and and run it as a standalone event because you know it's not like the bcci is uh, is short of a dollar so as you say if it does make a loss 
that's realistically no skin off their nose in in terms of you know the look at the eye watering amounts uh, that they're selling the IPL rights to. They can very very comfortably afford to subsidise a women's competition, which you know whether or not it eventually makes money, it's the right thing to do in terms of you know you look at the Indian women's team. They are just a step behind even England, who are obviously a, a, a long way behind Australia, who are you know <laughs> I, I remember kind of working out when that final happened that you know you could literally put together a, a second 11 you know including no players who played in that final for Australia and that Australian second 11 would be very very competitive and quite possibly winning the the World Cup anyway so uh, the, the fact that Australia is just so far ahead is purely down to the amount of investment that they're putting into their women's cricket setup and why the BCCI apparently doesn't want to spend what is a you know a very very small fraction of its money on they could very well have a, an Australia level uh, women's team, but that they just haven't put the investment there, and yeah, it, it is quite strange. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Whether you want to go down the investment line and to see what it's done for Australia, just need to watch them at the most recent World Cups about how dominant they've been. As Bez said, they could run it as a, at a loss really forever and it not make a, a huge dent considering what the media rights is going to happen with the I, IPL over the next. The next chapter would potentially double or triple and although there's been stuff in the press of well some of the suitors who would be going up against star or disney saying that they need to get a reality check but if the demand's out there and this is where the bcci could be taking a real lead there by saying okay well great you want to be having this much money coming in well let's get it done now and link to a women's ipl deal at the same time and if you want to spend that much on an ipl well you can spend a little bit more and, and get the women's ipl and guarantee the same levels of production um, and exposure BCCI has the power here. You know, they could change global cricket for women. Not just in India. You know, just think about if, you know, I've been, been watching all this stuff with Elon Musk buying Twitter. People saying, what would you do if you had $45 billion? Well, you know, probably start a few global cricket leagues and have them run uh, meritocratically. <laughs> but let's not go into that. But BCCI, almost in that position, where they're the ones on a, you know, I'm thinking about the lion with the, you know, with all the uh, the gold that that, uh, that they've amassed over, you know, in these fairy tales. They're the ones that could do something revolutionary for for women's cricket they could run a global league really in a, and it be professional league that would make people change sports but instead we get this watered down version that'll be run over a week at the same time as the IPL it kind of makes you think of playing league matches in the first round of a world cup and playing uh, practice games with some of the biggest teams in the world on at the same time meaning that you, you don't get any exposure for the actual world cup games you know what tree falling in the woods and no one's around to look at it then you know is it falling at all and yep i know covid but come on there's enough resources there at the bcci to, to do it properly so yeah it's disappointing especially with the energy that was around negative energy around what was done last year about how it could be done so much better but just not listen it's really disappointing especially seeing what can be done the country with a lot lower population and uh, you know, cricket australia's budget being nowhere near what bcci could put towards developing women's cricket i'm continued to be amazed because it wouldn't take a whole lot and you could tinker a little bit with the the conditions and the rules that you've got in the men's ipl from an overseas player perspective and a domestic player perspective you wouldn't necessarily need to have the same split as the ipl does if you needed some extra talent from overseas playing in the tournament i don't see anything wrong wrong with it i think the domestic players actually playing in it would benefit quite a lot from a tournament of that nature and there'd be at least 30 to 40 Indian women's cricketers who would put up a product 
worthy enough of a strong domestic competition with a sprinkling of international talent it it wouldn't take a lot for it to get off the ground and the continued negligence um, makes me think that there's something probably a little bit more sinister at play here because honestly and as as someone who's just come from you know a, a women's global event there's just so much opportunity there and and we've talked about it so many times and Nick makes a point of it a lot is that in men's cricket there's just there's a couple of things that are sort of broken in men's cricket like for instance someone mishitting a ball into the crowd still somehow and and I think that some of the intricacies of the women's game and some of the skill in in parts of it make it a fairer but also its own strong product to watch and just to see it not be done in a place as cricket mad as India and with as much profitability potential as as India it's just a missed opportunity and it's only really the BCCI you know who can make a really big gain financially and otherwise out of this and and they just continue to leave it on the table so in a weird roundabout sort of way you know if it was to be mega profitable for the BCCI in some weird utopian world the bcci wouldn't need as much icc funding and that money would be able to be split <laughs> elsewhere we know that that's it i would make the case they already don't need that yeah same i was for once waiting for him to finish to say that yeah yeah i, I yeah i totally agree with with that statement but i mean if anything it would only kind of emphasize that point a little bit more and but it's a self-fulfilling prophecy here you know you say that there aren't that enough players to fill out enough ipl teams it's like well if you build a system and had something at the top that pulled those players through you would have said yeah. the same about India before the IPL, you know, and now we've got 10 sides. Well, I think they even did say that when the IPL started, there was a really big disparity between some of the domestic talent in IPL 1 to 3 and, and the international players that were on hand to play at the tournament. Yeah. So, you know, those, however many teams there are going to be, instead of not doing anything at the moment, they could be starting academies or they could actually be linking with the domestic structures for women's and girls cricket in, in all those states at the moment, which we know is not going to be getting as much funding as the, the men's game at the moment anyway so we're, we are really preaching to the choir to each other and everyone that's listening I, I don't think I've had anyone say well why would they bother just to know what a game changer for the sport globally like full stop uh, a few points stateside to probably bring up this week uh, a couple of items World Cricket League 2 the series that will be played there the multiple series that will be played in the US will be held in Texas at Moosa Stadium and not in uh, North Carolina nor anywhere else and the other port of call uh, major league cricket and the Kolkata Knight Riders have a joint venture for a 10,000 seater stadium in California uh, definitely one to keep an eye on with potential uh, Olympic facilities for 2028 that's definitely something that is on the radar and a possibility how probable that might be uh, it's yet to be seen but Probably a little bit more to talk about from the the Knight Riders MLC side of things. It's not the first time that KKR have weighed in with with something tangible stateside. Shah Rukh Khan has come out and said multiple times he's keen to sort of grow the game in that part of the world. But just another sort of initiative to, I suppose, emphasize that point, Nick. And, And yes, it is only really potential at this point you would have to say that you know the potential for for something like this to to happen would be would be good for california and, and cricket in that scene but generally speaking that the major league cricket and the, and the u.s cricket project would continue to blossom if something like this was to happen yeah it's interesting kkr have been uh one of the more kind of forward 
cricketing-looking, I don't know, cricketing business, cricketing uh, conglomerate, I guess you could call them. Um, I believe they're looking at having a team uh, in the eventual Major League Cricket tournament, uh, so it makes sense that they would be interested in, in facilities as well. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, the Olympics thing is something they've kind of talked about, but with I mean, 2028 is not that far away, which sounds kind of scary, if yeah. you, um, you know, when, when you think about it. But, you know, they're, they're running out of road if they're going to have the facilities ready. You know, they're, they're going to need to build it in basically in five years, which is a, a pretty big task, even if they're throwing a, a fair bit of cash at it. In terms of, yeah, USA facilities, I think, yeah, the more, the more you know, high quality venues they have, the better in terms of, uh, obviously, uh, the minor league cricket and in a way, it kind of makes more sense to be building a, a sort of purpose-built, like a 10,000-seat stadium. Um, you know, you can design it specifically for smaller crowds rather than some of the more fanciful ideas that you hear floating around about transforming some disused American football or baseball stadiums that would require a lot of uh, renovation and have a lot of empty seats and you know, all that kind of thing is, is sort of a bit, um, yeah, a bit fanciful. So if they're just building a, a basic cricket stadium, uh, not too far from Los Angeles. That's not the worst idea. Um, yeah, and, and the Musa Stadium thing is, is quite interesting. Uh, we, we are all familiar with Musa Stadium through uh, Peter Delapena, who yes. is uh, uh, sponsored. His his podcast is sponsored by Musa Stadium, so uh, he's obviously very happy uh, to hear that. But uh, yeah, it looks like a good venue, and um, yeah, the more the merrier, I, I guess, in terms of uh, top-quality facilities in the US. Yeah, it's an interesting one you sort of mentioned, KKR looking to to get a team and you know, they talk about how they work so well together with the Kolkata Knight Riders and the Trimbago Knight Riders as a sort of a 24-7, 365 franchise. It's, you know, people sharing knowledge across the teams. But KKR, well, at least the, the, the holding company, is actually invested in MLC at the top line, you know, the, into the old American cricket enterprise. So rather than buying a franchise and sort of running it the same way that they're looking at from a, a Knight Riders point of view, it's going to be interesting to see how that looks because if you're a Mumbai Indian do you think we're going to buy a team in the MLC and you know one of your your rivals um, in the larger competition at the moment the IPL has a huge stake in uh, mm. the league itself I just wonder whether they might have look I'm, I'm sure like the level of investment that we're talking about it was a difficult decision um, or at least not, not, not a difficult decision in the sense to sort of to partner with someone of that standing but uh, but yeah as you say that's a 2028 it's going to be going to be here pretty soon or well, 2023 is going to be here when mlc is supposed to start major league cricket or at least ace as they were you know they've got to deliver six stadiums uh pretty quickly that will be able to host major league cricket as well so yeah interesting to see how this all look in the into the future kind of looking back to you know the, the announcement of the kkr was made december 2020 so to see this now materializing and then finding a location that they're going to jointly invest in i guess it's not new news in the sense that kk had already been involved but i just wonder how that's going to look when they start selling franchises um or at least looking to to find suitors around the world and just whether the fact that a an, an ipl franchise already has a stake in the the event itself rather than the, the franchise which is normally the model around the world probably just one more thing to add i uh, saw an interesting sort of interaction that involved our very own nate hayes uh on the allocation of the matches being taken to texas and not north carolina and and you know he's got a horse in this race being uh from from around the the Morrisville area and watching a lot of cricket in that part of the world, but he made the argument that there was no better community for USA cricket support than Morrisville, North Carolina. That was in response to a a tweet from someone 
I'm assuming is from Texas that said that, you know, the matches in Texas have got to be better than qualifying matches in North Carolina's complex. So <laughs> there is still very much that tribal rivalry in parts of, of the US. And the the optimist in me would say that, you know, if all of these cities and all these areas actually strive to be the best, it would all push them all along and reach to the top though we have sort of seen in the past especially in the usa where they end up kind of eating at each other but look again it's just another move from from usa cricket and and again with with the news of of kkr in the oc uh (laughs) there is continued investment in 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 america and if it is done in the right way we've got a sleeping giant of international cricket and with the 2024 t20 world cup that'll be coming quick as well because I don't want to alarm you boys, but we're already in 2022. I know 2020 <laughs> seems like an age ago now, but look, a lot of these places will pop up as as stadiums for a Cricket World Cup, Musa, this potential uh, stadium in the OC, and Morrisville, North Carolina. So there's plenty to look forward to, and, and we're starting to see the bones of, of what that tournament will look like as well. So uh, exciting news stateside. Moving to another team competing in League 2 in Nepal. They've hosted Zimbabwe A. Uh, None of these matches really counting from a statistical standpoint, but definitely a good hit out for both sides. Uh, Nepal and Zimbabwe sharing the T20 series one match apiece with a no result in the middle. Two contrasting results. I'm not really sure what to make of this. Nepal winning the third match uh, by eight wickets with 25 balls remaining, but losing the first match with seven balls remaining and by six wickets as well. So a good opportunity for a few players to put their hand up and, and throw their name into the ring for selection. A couple of controversies to come from it as well, and we'll talk about those in a second. But Nick, I'll, I'll start with you. Uh, Ganendra Mala was left out completely. They gave a couple of young players uh, a chance in Bazir Ahmad and Muhammad Adil gets another game after making his T20 debut in the recent tri-series. What did you make of this one? Uh, it's hard to sort of gauge just how good Zimbabwe AR, but Nepal also trialing new players and resting players. It, it is hard to gauge, but a good hit out for both sides. Yeah, it's a bit of a kind of experimental side for, for both teams here, I think. Yeah, you would say that this is... I don't know, what's the second string for an A side, like a B side or A, A side? I don't know. But the, um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely not the best second 11 that Zimbabwe could be putting together, that's for sure. Uh, interesting that they still managed to win the first match in a canter. Uh, Tony Munyonga's 50 off 23 balls, taking Sandeep to the cleaners. And Nepal fighting back to thrash Zimbabwe in the third with, uh, with Asif Sheikh. Smashing 80-odd of not too many deliveries. Uh, yeah, you, you mentioned the Ganendra Mala thing. I, he's been really out of form for quite a while now, so I don't know if that's... I mean, when do they move on from him, you know? Uh, we, we talked about his experience, and, and there is some value in having a, a senior guy with you know with a lot of uh, experience to draw on and to, to kind of be a bit of a mentor to a young team because, I know, you know, Sandeep's the captain and he's <laughs> barely 21, so... Yeah, there is some value to that. But at the same time, if he's not scoring runs, you you want to be bringing in some guys who might be able to do a bit better. So I think it's probably good. Maybe they could keep him around as kind of a almost the on-field coach role. But yeah, I, I, I think it might be time for him to move on. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because we've seen Namibia bring in the experience of a David Vise, But 
you know, he's still bringing a certain level of, of skills and performance to the team that you know, unless Mal is sort of bringing something, I, I, I think Nepal are moving past where they can carry a player. Um, you know, I think back to Hong Kong tours in the mid 2010s, where I think Kinchit Shah at one stage was all, almost playing as a specialist fielder, batting down low and, and not bowling. You know, of course now he's one of their, their best players. So the difference is that Muller isn't in that situation, and I think I think that's a big question for team leadership is that what part will he play in that that leadership role or that leadership group because you know I'm sure as Bez will touch on soon you know that seems like there's a little bit of tension there either with the captain or with the captain and the leadership group so how they manage that is is critical but you mentioned Muhammad Adil Alam not yet 18 for him to score 47 off 27 that first match and although that that score got chased down by Zimbabwe when they scored a 181 for five that's a good start but yeah I echo your thoughts there Nicholas with this being a bit, I don't know, a bit of an asterisk. You know, what what is this actually doing for for both teams? It's almost, if we didn't know better, it's almost like a full member AB tour. When I I just wonder how much money would have been spent on this by by Nepal, and you know whether more could have been got out of get, getting an, a, another top associate in there. But um, it's still great to see a full member touring Nepal, and I guess the experience this gets at younger players is great. And for Asif Sheikh, you know, he scored a, a ninety in a, in a one day for for Nepal for but that ninety seven that was key in their win. Good for him too, and he's not yet twenty two either so you talk about young players coming in you know some of these names that you kind of go, oh they've been around for a while but they're uh, not yet 22 but yeah interesting to see what combos they go for in the 50 over matches there's a huge turnover of players in nepal and just looking at the the opening pair in the t20s of bertel and shake it seems like that's probably the best long-term pairing for them in the future Asif Sheikh had a rather disappointing T20 World Cup qualifier. Bertel was good. He made 100, uh, I think, against the Philippines. But those two were the ones that were entrusted when Dav Watmore was at the helm, and they looked classy. But there just seems to be such a turnover in players in Nepal, and they're still filling that leadership void left by Paris Kadka. And it's it's a big hole, you know. I wouldn't envy anyone trying to fit in there. And giving Sandeep the captaincy after taking it away from Maller and then dropping Maller, it remains to be seen what the future holds for Ginendra Maller, but it, it looks as if, you know, in the long term, it, it's definitely, he's definitely not the right person there. They've brought back Sharad Vasorka for the T20Is uh, in recent times in a kind of finishing role, so he's an older figure in the side, but I looked to someone like Dependra Singh Ari, and from the outside, and this is purely from an outsider's perspective and, and not really knowing the ins and outs of the politics of Nepali cricket, he almost seems more of a leader than, than Sandeep is. Sandeep is clearly their finest talent on paper across the team, just based on his, his credentials almost alone. But the way that Dependra Singh Ire handles pressure and, and makes runs and takes wickets with the ball, he seems to be uh, a dependable figure in the team. And okay, maybe they don't want to give him the responsibility of captaincy, but he just seems a little bit more level-headed as a figure than Sandeep. One controversy that I do want to bring up, and we must add the caveat here that all three of us are not experts in uh, customs and etiquette of Nepali culture and and happy to be corrected about all of this by someone listening in but there was some footage this week that came out of of Sandeep asking to be referred to as Sandeep G which is sort of a term of of respect it it can be a little bit misconstrued when trying to kind of equate it to to something in in, in different cultures that have the likes of, of die and buy as well as terms of respect so that interaction that was had with the press, that raised a few eyebrows, and I think it, it probably showed that things aren't completely rosy in Nepal. 
not sure whether we're making a mountain out of a molehill on this, but I feel like something like that just shows that things aren't quite right in the setup at the moment and they've never really got the balance right, if we're honest with ourselves, as long as emerging cricket's been a thing and looking back even longer to the suspension and even beforehand as well. So look, we talked about the T20 league that that can... Uh, had announced in inverted commas because it wasn't really much of an announcement. There's still a lot of things, there's still a lot of moving parts in Nepali cricket that makes me think that they're definitely not a well-gelled unit, either on the field or off the field. And we keep asking ourselves every week, and I don't know who wants to pick up on this, but (laughs) where to from here? Because... Every every single decision they make, it just comes back to square one in, in some sort of way. And for all the potential, potential doesn't really mean anything if you just keep sort of making the same mistakes and expecting something different to happen. Yeah, I, I mean, this this uh, kind of Sandeep controversy seems like a bit of a, I don't know... A storm in a teacup, maybe. Yeah, exactly. I was about to say that. Um, I don't know. It seems a little bit petty on his part to request that, but at the same time, for journalists to make a big deal about it, it's kind of a bit navel-gazing. I don't know. I've just been watching a lot of election coverage and, boy, there's a lot of... <laughs> frivolous questions you know <laughs> like there's there's some real substantial issues that just aren't getting addressed and that goes for the Australian election and for uh for Nepali cricket and you know <laughs> why aren't they asking about all these other issues that are going on rather than you know this this stuff about how how Sandeep likes to be addressed I don't know it's kind of silly Sandeep as captain yeah I don't know you're right he in, in that he is their you know their star player but a lot of the time the star player isn't necessarily the best choice for captain for a number of reasons, temperamentally, tactically, whatever. Uh, Dependra Singh Iree, as you say, seems like a good candidate. I don't know. I mean, that opening pair looks to be kind of firming up as as the unit going forward. But then below that, there's just a huge kind of yeah, what's next? M- muddle in the middle order of like who, you know, there's, there's a lot of options and not a lot of clarity. Yeah, I don't know. They're, they're just, they're, they seem rudderless. So, I mean, hopefully the... Uh, the new general manager can sort of start putting his stamp of authority on and, and kind of shake things up because I just don't see where the leadership's coming from, really, uh, at an administrative level. Only we could draw some parallels between the Australian election campaign and Nepal cricket. I think that's <laughs> I think we've got to put this story all the way back to the top of the, the podcast and that we've got a title for it. But, um, yeah, um, I've always thought Sandeep was an interesting choice as captain, but I guess as you look around the team now, you got to wonder you know how many other options are there and were there at the time and yeah that old under 11s of picking your best player as captain but I, I do think sometimes the Nepali Twitterati or at least the, the fan group they love an outrage there's like a there's always blowing up about something and sometimes <laughs> correctly you know with about the players salaries when they were brought out both how poor they were structured and also um, how the women were treated but there are also elements that you know, I think sometimes that, that you've got to support the game's growth and be structured in in your challenges and we saw a fan group as the I think it was the Nepal Cricket Supporters Society form and be a really strong lobbying group um, to try and bring change uh, and it seems that since their leader or their founder is now employed by CAN uh, I'm not sure how much that group is active in the in the the lobbying that they they do and and you know, a, a cricket market is always going to grow up and change and, and evolve. But I think everything that frustrates us about Nepal is that we're not seeing a strategy 
well, if there is a strategy, it's not been clearly communicated to, you know, I'd count us as fans of Nepali cricket, not just journalists or and sometimes teams playing against them. You know, a successful Nepal is going to catch the the world's eye mm-hmm. because, you know, when everyone says who's the next full member, you say, well, apart from Nepal, <laughs> you know, it's, it's all these other... All these other, you know, you know, as much as Scotland and uh, well, Scotland especially, when the Netherlands in terms of on-field performances. But I think that's the the disappointing thing. And if people have got this far on the podcast, I don't think they're going to mind us talking about the same thing again. But you know, where, where is a, a website or a communication that describes what Nepal cricket's trying to do? What is the story they're selling to potential fans? What is the story they're selling to potential partners? Both, you know, I mean, financial from sponsors, but government and teams touring. You don't get me wrong that the pictures of a of a full TU ground is a great advertisement sometimes you don't need anything more than that but I think that is what we haven't seen through all this change from when Barwana Gamir was CEO to the, the merry-go-round of general managers since Can was suspended or well, brought back from suspension that tells you that there's yeah as you say there's a rudder list whether it was ever there and whether they have paddles um, so you just hope this new GM and um, and, the, and again they still have a large board but that they're working towards something there's a strategy because all we're hearing is you know about this t20 tournament but we're not going to tell you anything about it yet um okay great let's hear about the domestic structure domestic development how the game is going to grow and what we're seeing here is probably just symptomatic of, of everything that's going on and you know sandeep has been the poster boy for nepali cricket for oh geez you know five years now ever since he sort of hit the headlines through a certain tournament in Hong Kong, I believe it was. I'm, I'm, I can't remember the name. Um, but, you know, jokes aside, you know, when he got picked up in the IPL, it was amazing news for for our world, really. And you sort of feel for him a bit in that he sort of thrust into the, the spotlight and what support has he, he been given. And you, know, and you hear about the political machinations in the background that a lot of those senior players are involved in. You, you think that that's also contributing to it as well. You've got to get to a point. It's not just the fans about, you know, pull back on the... Uh, get on, uh, get on this campaign to change. It's like, what, what, how do we all work together to to help cricket's development? So I think that's that's got to be a question. Of how, how does Can channel that? And it's top to the bottom. It's like, you know, it's very easy to point at a guy who's sitting there demanding how he be addressed in a in a press conference. But I don't think that's that's the problem that should be dealt with at the moment, or at least that's not the biggest problem that should be dealt with. Yeah, that that's that's pretty well summed up. Tim and I'm sure a lot of listeners from from the parlor are keen to probably impart their thoughts on it as well and we're all ears with the hashtag ACPod of course so uh, make sure to, to let us know what you think Hi, I'm Irene van Seyl from the Namibian national ladies team, I'm the captain and thank you for listening to the Emerging Cricket Podcast well, last week we had Head of Cricket Operations in Japan, Alan Kerr, preview the Japan Premier League. That was run over last weekend, and he's back to review all of the action. Thanks for having me back on. And yes, the Japan Premier League concluded last weekend in slightly damp fashion. Uh, to give you an extra bit of background, this is the first time in three years we've been able to hold the tournament during our preferred weather window uh, of late April, early May, due to COVID issues. At this time of year, it's normally clear blue skies and perfect temperatures for cricket, which is exactly what we had on day two, but not so much on days one and three. We ended up having to calculate results with Duckworth Lewis for all morning matches on Friday and Sunday, and lost the afternoon matches entirely on those days, which included the final. So that was a bit of a letdown, but what that meant was that the winners were decided on final league placings, meaning the tournament was won by the East Canto Sunrisers for just the second time in their history, 
and it wasn't a victory without a bit of luck and drama, thanks to the weather. Their match on day one against the much-fancied South Canto Super Kings really went to the wire after the Sunrisers were shot out for just 82 inside 16 overs, only for the Super Kings to make a bit of a meal of the chase. As the rain started falling, so the wickets kept tumbling, and with 11 balls remaining, they were just ahead of the DL par score, only to lose a seventh wicket, which edged the total needed up to 75. And as the umpires took the teams off, it took a while for everyone to realise that the Sunrisers had just nicked the result by one run, thanks to that wicket off the, uh, off the penultimate ball. Uh, and that ultimately proved the deciding factor in the final standings. The Sunrisers lost one match to rain, but remained unbeaten for the tournament, while the Super Kings won the rest of their matches, but wasn't quite enough for them. It wasn't all bad for the Super Kings, though, as they took a clean sweep of the individual awards. Alex Shirai Patmore won the best batter, and his innings of 73 or 47 balls against the North Canto Lions was a really impressive display. Uh, Piyush Kumbare, the left-arm spinner, took a ridiculous court and bowled in that same game to get rid of Lockdown Yamamoto Lake, who also had impressed with the bat. Uh, you can see that catch on YouTube highlights. It's definitely worth checking out. And Kumbare ended the tournament with 10 wickets, including a 5 for 15, and that gave him the best bowler award, while South Canto captain Sabarish Ravichandran won the overall MVP. Other notable performances came from Rayo Sakurano-Thomas, who has definitely been a find over the last couple of weeks and he'll be a name to look out for in Japan cricket going forward, I think. While Shotaro Hiratsuka also looked pretty good for a young kid playing against the men. Uh, as I mentioned, there are highlights of all the games up on our YouTube channel, uh, but for now our attention turns back to domestic cricket and enjoying the absolutely perfect weather that we've had since Monday. Cheers, guys. Head of Cricket Operations in Japan, Alan Kerr, wrapping the Japan Premier League. Finally, some news uh, on the men's T20i series front. Spain has taken out a tri-series over Guernsey and Norway, though the Spaniards didn't have it all their way at Desert Springs in Almeria. They claimed three out of four wins at the event, going down to Guernsey by eight wickets in match five. Norway also tasted victory in the series, beating Guernsey largely thanks to Sher Sahak, 70 not out from just 29 balls. That's all the action in Emerging Cricket this week. For more, log on to EmergingCricket.com. But for now, enjoy the rest of your week wherever you are around the Emerging Cricket world.